Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Jude. We live in a world that is against the ways of Jesus. It seems that everywhere we look, the truth of God's word is under attack, even within the church. We as believers are called not to cower in the face of these attacks, but to boldly proclaim what is true and defend what is right. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Jude. Uh, We started this a month ago, so I'm not being slow like I was in Luke Um, I was away, so that's my excuse. But we are going to take it just a little bit of a chunk here today to do. Please stand with me as we read. Jude, I'm not going to say chapter 1 because there is only one chapter. So Jude 1. For the sake of continuity, we started in this a couple weeks ago in an introduction, but I want to again read this um, this morning with you. Jude, he says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Most of you have heard the story of the Trojan horse, that ancient tale that tells us of the Trojan War and the stratagem that ultimately brought the Greeks to their final uh, victory in conquering the city of Troy. But it had been for 10 long years that the Greeks had laid siege to the city of Troy, but they were unable to make even a small dent in the fortifications. Troy seemed to be impregnable. It seemed that there was no way whatsoever to gain entrance into the city until one great idea came up with and brought great enthusiasm. And the strategy was this, that they would build a large horse, large enough to conceal soldiers inside of it, and then they would place that horse by the city gate and they would pretend to desert their quest to conquer the city and sail away giving the illusion that they had finally given up on the battle. And so they build this huge wooden horse just as they planned, and they placed and stationed soldiers within it, and they placed it just outside the city gate, and everything went according to plan. The Greeks pretended that they were leaving and giving up all effort to penetrate the city. And so the Trojans felt falsely believed that the war was over. And so when they went out and opened the gates, they saw this huge horse, and out of curiosity, they brought the horse into the city, and they thought, in fact, of even making the horse a trophy piece of their victory over the Greeks. However, at nighttime, the darkness set in, the soldiers who had been stationed within the horse, it went outside of the horse and proceeded to unlock the city gates from within. Meanwhile, 
those Greeks had returned back under the cover of darkness and they had entrance into the city. And when the entire army had sought to do on, on 10 long years, we find was finally accomplished in just a matter of a few hours when the city gates were opened by a very conniving enemy. And this has really been a long time strategy of the enemy. If he can't gain entrance into our lives or even into the church from the outside, he'll do it by means some other way from within. He'll seek to do some, some way to, to, to do his work from inside. And of course, that's the story of church history that illustrates the point that when outward perse persecution and martyrdom failed to defeat the church from the outside, you find that Satan and all of his minions, they joined the church and they sought to destroy the church from within through the, through the building up of corruption, of pride and greed and a thirst for power that actually really took place within the church for many years, still continues to this day. And praise God, throughout all of church history, there has been that steadfast, small flow of people who held fast to the gospel message. And they held fast to that message that is still saving souls to this day, the message by which you and I are saved. But this is the burden that Jude had when he wrote this letter. This is a small letter, but it's potent. But in it, Jude sounds the alarm. We saw this in our last study. Jude understands, or he understood, that we are in a spiritual battle with an enemy who never, ever gives up. That we have an enemy who is strategizing, doing anything that he can do to gain entrance into our lives and cause as much destruction and damage as he can. So Jude, he shares really, in essence, much like Peter does in his second book, the same kind of heart. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 2, 1, he said, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We saw in our introduction that Jesus and all of the apostles gave very clear warnings about coming deceptions that would come against the church through false prophets, false teachers, who would come and willfully distort, malign, pervert the truth of God with their cunning, destructive heresies. So we saw Jude in the beginning, he identifies himself as the brother of James, who James, they both believed to be the, the, the half-brothers of Jesus, who had themselves become great leaders within the church, in fact, came to Jesus after his resurrection. But in time, both James and Jude became pillars in the church. But we saw how Jude explained that he had originally planned to write something to encourage them in their common salvation, something that they shared together. Perhaps he wanted to expound upon the wonderful grace of God, the, sh the sheer benefits of what it means to, to know the Lord. But the spirit had so stirred in his heart that he had to change his message so that he has to now sound the alarm, warning of impending, threatening danger that now confronts the church that's coming from within by apostates, 
by imposters who were seeking to corrupt the church from within with their destructive heresies. Now, the truth is, for a pastor, there is no greater joy in all the world than to talk about things that are joyful. It's always good to talk about things that make your heart glad. I mean, I love to go through and teach on Ephesians and to kind of elaborate upon the wealth and then the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. That's such a wonderful thing to do. And my heart just goes, oh, I love talking about this. I love talking about the grace of God. I love talking about the love of God. I love doing all that. It's a joy to teach Ephesians and the Philippians, the book of joy and rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice. I love that. However, there are other portions of scripture that are sobering and they're heavy. And sometimes they're unsettling to us. Sometimes they disturb us and they even offend us at times, but that doesn't make them any less important for our attention. You see, we may be less comfortable talking about the judgment to come, but that doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming and that, come, that it, it will, will in fact take place. It's an important truth that we as believers have to hold on to. But Jude, as he writes this sobering letter, we realize at face value, yeah, it can be quite unsettling to talk about apostates and intruders in the church. Because after all, we're not just talking about then. We're talking about what's going on in the church right now. I said in the beginning, I don't believe anymore of a coming apostasy in the church. We always talk about there's coming a great apostasy, a great apostasy. I believe that day is here. I don't believe it's coming, it's right now. And it's a very difficult time for us as a church. But Jude, as he writes this letter, notice he's very explicit about who he's writing to. He addresses it to those who are really, truly born-again believers. He's not talking to those who are just merely those who call themselves Christians or people who go to church or people who are merely religious, but he's talking to those who bear the marks of genuine Christianity. He defines them as those who are called by God. Those who are beloved in God the Father, they're experiencing the love of God. Those who have been sanctified, they're called saints in verse 3, but it means this, they've been made holy by God. They're set apart for his holy service and those who are kept, preserved for Jesus Christ. Well, he writes because there's something on his heart that he knows is very needful for the church to hear. Thus he sounds the alarm, and his exhortation to the church is this, that you contend earnestly for, notice this, the faith, not a faith, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. That faith by which we share together. Now that word contend we saw in our last study means that you agonize, that you agonize to hold on to. It's not passive. This is active defense of what is true. That word earnestly simply emphasizes that the, 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 the contending that you do this with all earnestness, with all your, your effort that you hold on to that which is true, opposed to the lies that you see coming your way. So he writes that we would, would agonize and assert ourselves in this truth, regardless of what is going on in the world around us. If there's ever an important word for you guys, for us, for me, It's this, because there's so much going on in the world. There is so much confusion even in the church. 
that I know I have to hold on to that which is true. I have to hold on to it. And he gives the warning here, verse four, and we're gonna look at this. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. First thing I want you to see their deception is that they crept in unnoticed. No one even knew they were there. Like the Trojan horse, they kind of made their way in before they started their work of deception. But they entered deceitfully. They crept in. They are creeps. (laughs) Real creeps. These are Satan's undercover agents who secretly came into the church with a mission to corrupt the true faith. Now, we know that in Galatians, Paul had to rebuke the Galatian believers because the Judaizers, the legalists, had sneaked in among them and were spying out their liberty in the Lord, and they were coming in among them and causing much confusion. We know that they were doing the same thing in Corinth. Paul writes to 2 Corinthians verse 11, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. These apostates, these intruders, made their way in among the believers by stealth. They crept in, and it makes me think of Paul while he's on the island of Miletus on his way to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, and there he meets with the elders of Ephesus, and he gives them this charge. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, the shepherd of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Listen, the truth is that the invisible church, what I mean by that is the true church, not the one that we think of in just buildings. No, we're talking about the collective body of, of Christ. We are a community of repentant sinners. And we have all of us been saved by the marvelous, wonderful grace of God. And the truth is, is that we know this gospel is free and it's open to all who will receive it. That's wonderful. It's free from all prejudice. And that we all have to come to the Lord by, in the same way, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, we come to Jesus Christ. But our doors are open for everyone. It's for whoever will come. But our openness is also our vulnerability. Because the strategies of the enemy means that false teachers and imposters may make their way in unawares, that they enter sometimes through the front door, sometimes through the back door, sometimes through the side window, but they're gonna find a way in, somehow, some way. We don't have barred windows. You know, we, we wanna keep it open. 
In fact, we are all welcome. In fact, we welcome all that come. The doors are open, and our prayer is that many of those who are lost would come and ultimately find Jesus here. But the truth is, we don't have any way of knowing those who really do know the Lord and those who don't. Now, and the fruit says who you are. You know, Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, You'll know them by their fruit. Notice Jesus said the only way you're going to know who they are is by the fruit that they bear. You'll, you, you'll know. I mean, there's, there's some of you, you recognize bad trees cannot produce good fruit and, and, and good trees cannot produce bad fruit. No, we have to, we, we're going to bear the fruit of the likeness of Christ somewhere there's going to be change in our life. Somewhere the fruit of the Spirit is going to show itself for what's really there. doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean we're changing. That we're not who we used to be. Aren't you guys glad about that? We're not who we used to be. God's changing us. He's making us more like Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit. That's what God is doing in us. It's why we come to fellowship. Make us, oh Lord, make us more like Jesus. But the shepherd's responsibility, we know this, is to tend, is to feed and protect the flock. But we don't always know who the flock are. They can come in. We don't know. Are you a wolf? Are you a goat? Or what are you? Exactly what are you? What this calls for is spiritual discernment. And the only way you can have that discernment is by knowing what is true and holding on to what is true. And that's through the word of God. Now, sadly, I believe what we're witnessing in our day is a lot of claiming pastors who are working hard to entertain the goats while fraternizing with the wolves. And to them, the aim of the church is simply to fill it with people. You kind of build the name in the community and, and hey, we're a big church, man. Come, come dig us, you know, look at us. But the duty and responsibility of a true shepherd is to love, to tend, to feed and protect the sheep from the predators. Thus you feed them the truth of God's word. Years ago, the Lord ministered to my heart this very truth, and it really set me free. So in my, my job as a pastor here is not to simply fill a building with people. I mean, it's nice having people here. I'm glad you come. Sometimes I'm surprised you come back. <laughs> I like it. it, it it's really good. But my, I realize my job as a pastor and all pastors isn't to, to have a lot of people, but rather here to feed the sheep. We're here to minister to the sheep. Whether there's few or there's many, we're here for the sheep of God. And we do that by feeding them pure word of God as, as we see here. You know, I'm not here to satisfy the felt needs of the goats. I don't care what their felt needs are. I know what we all need and that we all need is to repent and turn to Jesus. That's what we all need. So we see that. But pastors are not called to entertain goats and tolerate wolves. We're to proclaim the truth of God's word to the sheep. And one of the things I've noticed is that the sheep love the word. I'll never forget when I first started going to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. It was one of the greatest scenes. And the church was packed. And there's Pastor Chuck, and he's teaching through sometimes five, six chapters a night during the week. And you could just see that the people, they have, there were so many. They had to be outside and they had speakers on the outside. And people are sitting, you know, eating on grass and their Bibles are open and they're just listening and stuff. And I had just this picture. Here's the sheep. Look at them. 
They're just eating. They're feeding themselves, the, being fed the word of God, and they just loved it, and they, they were just, it was just so wonderful of a time. You know, the sheep love the word even when it stings. Doesn't it sometimes sting? Doesn't it sometimes you read it and you go, man, pastor, I don't want to go to church because sometimes I leave feeling bad. But you know what? Sometimes you just need to feel bad. Pastor Chuck used to admonish us pastors in our conferences. He would say, make sure that your sheep are the best fed, most loved and cared for sheep in town. And the reason was, he said, healthy sheep reproduce. When you're healthy, when you're growing, when you're in a good place, it's just kind of a thing. You watch all of a sudden your family start coming and, and you just watch the Lord just start beginning to stir up people around you. It's just a marvelous thing to see. I've been watching it for years. But notice these intruders, these are apostates. And it bears repeating that an apostate is not a true believer who has abandoned his salvation. Rather, I believe he is someone who may have professed to accept the truth, professed to have trusted Christ as their savior, but they end up turning away from the faith that that was once delivered to the saints. Jude, as with Peter, made it clear that the apostates were not God's sheep. Rather, they're really like pigs. They're like dogs more than they are as sheep. 2 Peter 2.20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the word by the knowledge of the Lord of the Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in, in their <coughs> entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is what Jude says about these apostates. They are marked for condemnation. While believers are marked for our salvation, our eternal salvation, these apostates intruders are destined for condemnation, regardless of what they claim about themselves. He says of them that they are godly, they are godless, they have no mind for God at all, they are ungodly. They are driven by their own fleshly passions and their own desires. They are driven by their own impulses. They may hold the form of godliness, but as Paul warned Timothy, they have denied its power in their life. And again, we expect opposition from the outside world, don't we? They don't have any, of course I expect the world to oppose me as a believer. That doesn't surprise me. Of course they do. We're, we have a whole different mindset. You know, I, I know that they're not going to be in agreement with me, and I'm not surprised at the fact that cults would oppose me or, you know, the occult for that matter. But what I don't expect, and it's sometimes home by surprise, is there's people within the church that would oppose you for speaking the truth, for simply speaking the word of God, who want to distort and corrupt the word of God godless people who have no heart at all for the truth or for God, and thus they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. 
They are abusing the grace of God by teaching that grace offers us license to sin freely. Freedom from sin, freedom to sin. Licentiousness. License without without moral restraint. King James calls it lasciviousness, lewdness in New King James. ESV says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. NIV says they change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. In every case, the meaning is the same. They teach that the grace of God sets us free to live without moral restraint or governing authority that is highlighted, we see, in sexual immorality. In other words, they're normalizing sexual sin and perversion without restraint. They're perverting the grace of God and interpreting it as freedom from law, as freedom now to sin. Second Peter tells us that many were even using Paul's teaching to justify this kind of teaching by the confusion of what Paul teaches on grace. So when you go through Romans, it's wonderful what he does in the the case that he lays out there. But Peter writes that those who are accusing even of Paul, he says, are the untaught, unstable, distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, know this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul had to combat even in his own teaching in Romans. He said, lest you be confused. Yes, the the grace of God is magnified by what he does in taking us as sinners unto himself. But he says in in Romans 6.1, shall we then say that we continue to sin so that the grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? You see, Jesus came to set us free from sin, not free to sin. And there's a big difference. These apostates, these intruders were indulging themselves in sexual perversion, all kinds of immorality, and kind of like no big deal. No big deal, man. He says, and thus, he says, they deny our master and our Lord Jesus Christ. In all these things that you see about them, the evidence that they have denied the Lord and master, the Lord of all, they have made themselves their own masters. They have made themselves their own lords. They're serving themselves rather than serving Christ. They're motivated not by the love for Christ or the liberation of souls that free from sin, nor the glories of the kingdom of God, but rather they're motivated by the glory of their own passions, of their own desires and pleasures. At that time, in that particular day, Gnosticism was on the rise. And the church was having to contend with it. And so they're beginning to deal with the Gnostics. And these Gnostics are those who claim to have a special supernatural enlightenment. You guys ever hear that before? Enlightenment. They had a special knowledge that only a select few were given. Gnosticism, in essence, taught that through this special enlightenment that the physical body or the material, anything that is material is essentially 
evil. Therefore, only the spirit is good. Only the spirit can be saved. God liberates the spirit. And of course, they had their own spiritual logic for all this. The false conclusion is drawn from this special enlightenment they have that it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. It's the spirit alone that matters. The only thing that matters to God is that which is affected by the spirit. Thus, in grace, the body is free to satisfy its lust and its desires to do whatever you want to do by whatever impulses you have without restraint. Of course, the real problem with Nazism is that it blatantly denied Jesus. You know, it claimed, in essence, that Jesus could not have come in the flesh. He could have only been here as the essence of Jesus. You guys ever hear that teaching out there? It's everywhere. Just pay attention, people. It's out. There's the essence of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, but he wasn't material. It's the old age, new age stuff, man. It's the old lies that have been renewed. Problem is, if Jesus has only come in spirit, then he didn't die in the flesh. And if he didn't die in the flesh, you and I are still in our sins. That's a big problem. So the reasoning is, so why not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we all die? Just have at it, man. Just live it. Do whatever we want to do. I want to take my remaining time here and talk about two great dangers I think that face the believer that we have to contend for and standing for the grace of God. Two great dangers. One is spiritual liberalism. The other is spiritual legalism. Both dangerous. Two sides of the pendulum. Both miss the grace of God. What is spiritual liberalism? By using that word liberalism, I'm not talking about politics here merely, although there are commonalities. As relating to progressiveness, I'm referring to those who hold a liberal view of the Bible and the authority that it has over our lives. Spiritual liberals are those who claim to have a greater, enlightened knowledge, intellectual knowledge, progressive view of things based on the nature of man, as well as their belief about the, the questioning of the infallibility and authority of the word of God in a believer's life. In essence, they are man-centered. It is a progressive view that places man at the helm of his own moral governing. It's called antinomianism. It's called means without law. There is no governing. It's like we become a law unto ourselves. You think anybody does that in our day? It is a belief system that has swept and swallowed whole denominations who have embraced these liberal views. There are multitudes of denominations today that once began in the solid truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but through the years have compromised and turned away from the truth to these very deceptions. Liberalism, this spiritualism is, is, is religious. But the religion is more like humanism, the belief that man is capable to save himself through intellectual pursuits. We can find peace by our own effort. Man's basically good. He will basically essentially do what is right. And thus you find they deny the inerrancy and the authority of God's word, thus making the Bible subjective to one's own interpretation. So they seek to reinterpret the Bible to accommodate the culture that you live in. Are, are we seeing any of that in our day? So the idea is that you gotta get to pick and choose what you like, what you don't like. I think I like this, I'm gonna hold on to that. Oh, I don't like this, forget that. Kind of go through and kind of edit your own Bible like Thomas Jefferson did and he didn't believe in the supernatural so he kind of cut it all out, he had a very small Bible, very small. 
Liberals may claim to, to be Christians, but many even deny the virgin birth. They deny the deity and the resurrection of Jesus. The essential depravity of man, they don't hold to that. And thus they also deny the final judgment of the wicked, eternal hell. Reasoning is this, is God is love, and since God is love, there's no way that he would ever condemn anyone to hell. There's no way that there's even going to talk about hell. And we're going to be dealing with judgment next week in our study. I hope you come back. <laughs> but I mean, this goes on and on and on. And the point is, when you write off the Bible and its authority and its righteous standard that tells us the truth of the gospel, you have no standard left to give measurement to what you believe in. And there's moral implications that go along with that. I mean, what about right and wrong? Is there really absolutes? Are there moral absolutes? I mean, has that kind of all gone out the window? I mean, who's to say that homosexuality is right or wrong? I mean, who's to say that pornography isn't just a fine art. Who's to say that adultery and fornication are, you know, misguided or something wrong? And why does a couple have to get married anyway? Who's to say that a man shouldn't marry a man and a woman a woman? After all, we're living in a new day and things have changed, times have changed, we're in new morals, we have progressed, we're moving along just fine. This is what I read, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a very scary thing, but on the other side of the pendulum is the danger of spiritual legalism. If you remember, it was this issue of legalism that Paul had to write his letter to the Galatians because they were invaded by false teachers who were the Judaizers, they were the legalists. Now, legalism, I define it as this, the attempt to, of man to gain God's favor by his own good works, which ultimately is self-righteousness. Legalism takes the wonderful free grace of God and the work accomplished by Jesus for us, and it focuses on our own performance, not Christ. Now, remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were legalists. They clung to the law to attain their righteousness. Thus, they were a very self-righteous people who had no use for Jesus. They could not understand what he was saying when he was talking to the fact that they too were sinners in need of a savior. So you're okay as long as you don't do these things and you do other things. Just live by the rules, the list of do's and don'ts. Don't dance, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, or hang around those that do. You know, you got the whole thing hanging out. Simply doing things and not doing other things may sound noble, but they're never going to make you right with God. Ever. The bottom line is a false belief system is that you can do your own do's and don'ts, and you can earn your favor with God by your own righteousness. What a falsehood. What a lie. Do you know that self-righteousness, I believe, is perhaps the most offensive thing to the cross? Because you're saying, in essence, I can do it without him. Legalists, they use the fear of hell, guilt. I tell you what, you're going you're to have so much guilt, I'm going to make you want to live for God. You're going to be so afraid of hell, you're going to want to live for God. Listen, that's the idea that they kind of promote. 
But what I know about legalism is just as ugly and abusive as, as it is the liberalism. It's man-centered theology, and it places the burden of salvation on one's own achievements rather than on the achievement of what Jesus alone has done for us. The problem with us is that our flesh is inclined toward legalism. Did you guys know that? I mean, we like it. Did, have you noticed that even in our culture, that the farther people get away from God, the more laws they add? Laws. We like laws. For some, it is just give me the ABCs, give me the one, two, threes, and I'll do my very best. And you got your self-effort, willpower, we're going to get this thing. We're going to do good. And it seems so much easier to live by rules than it is by a relationship. But God calls us to a relationship. And it's a relationship of love, which you have been talking about for the past few weeks. But the reasoning is, you know what, if you just follow the rules... At least then you have a way of measuring how well you're doing. I mean, I haven't smoked lately. <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> I haven't said bad words much lately. I'm doing better. But legalists tend to measure themselves against others, which is a faulty measurement. Because you're always going to find others who are better than you and others who are worse than you. And so you can say, look, at, I, I might be bad but I'm not that bad. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm working at it. I know I'm going to get there. And the truth about this is, is that our sin always looks worse when someone else is wearing it. Did you notice that? I'll notice, your, I'll notice my sin that you do much more when I see it on you. In fact, I'll hate it more because legalists tend to be judgmental. They tend to be fault finders. They tend to be those who find the specks and the flaws in the eyes of others while neglecting the log in their own eye. The real question is, is not so much how I measure up to you or anyone else, but how do I measure up to Jesus? He's the standard. No one was more law-centered than the Pharisees. You know what Jesus said? He said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'll tell you that legalism is just as deadly as liberalism because it misses the same idea. It misses the grace of God. And they're both man-centered. One seeks to find favor through law, the other without law. But in both cases, they're looking to themselves and their own standard rather than Jesus, the true standard, who alone has power to make us righteous in the sight of God by his righteousness and not our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that amazing? I love that. He makes me righteous by what he does. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. 
You see, the truth is that my biggest problem, your biggest problem has always been you. And Jesus came to save us from ourselves. Do you realize that? He came to save me from me. And I'm so glad. Because every time me shows up, it's not good. I'm not going to give you the Doug Less thing again. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, this is the truth about legalists. They tend to try harder rather than die harder. Just try, just try. And they both miss the grade of God that can only be found by faith in Christ alone. I thank God that Jude had a change of mind. This teaching was threatening to bring a lot of destruction within the church by corrupt men with corrupt minds, and they were leading others astray. And Jude says, oh, that you would contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Can I tell you, this is my prayer for you in our day that you hold on to the grace, the truth of God's grace for you, that holy trust in the name of Jesus. If you're trusting in you, you are making a very tragic mistake. You can't do it, people. See, the legalist, you're never good enough. You're never good enough. And the truth is, in my flesh, I will never be good enough. But God provided a way for me to live for him through repentance, where he washes me with the blood of Jesus Christ. This is my prayer. There's no time to quit, people, as a church, no matter what's going on in the world and no matter what people are saying. You have to hold fast to that which is true. We are saved through, by grace through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And here's the truth, us who know Jesus, we've been given the treasures of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ who alone makes us righteous in the sight of God. And he is who gives us merit before God. And so when you go home and you say, well, listen, I'm going to do better. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going, to, I'm going to spend three hours every day. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do all these things. Look at if you're looking to you, you're making a mistake. It still won't make you right with God. You still got to come to Jesus. He's the only way. He's the only way. I love this song, Holy Fire. It's been on the tunes lately, but I love this phrase. It says, I don't want to abuse your grace, God. I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. And it's true. It isn't the fear of hell that makes me want to do right. It's my love for Jesus. 
And that's what the gospel does for you when it finally begins to work in you. It's like, Lord, I just want to live for you. Not because I'm afraid of hell or I've got this guilt. No, I want to let all the guilt go and trust you and find no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But believer, you have to make up your mind right now what you believe about the Bible. What you believe about the word. The Bible is not progressive. It is complete. It is eternal. More importantly, it's true. It makes no attempt to be woke. It doesn't adjust itself to our times. The God's word is unchanging for all generations, for all cultures. And I'll say that as loud as I can say it, because I believe it. And I've said this to you before, but why don't you hold it again. Never judge the Holy Scripture against the standard of the culture you are living in. Always judge the culture you are living in against the standard of God's eternal holy word. And while we as believers may be progressing in our faith, and I pray that you are, I pray that you're growing in the knowledge of God's holy word and the grace that he has for you. Never subject yourself to the scrutiny of this world, which lies. We're not seeking new truth. We're seeking to grow in the truth that's already been given to us because we know that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. According to the truth of the faith, we are loved, we are forgiven, we're made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And people, this is good news for every sinner. And it doesn't matter where you come from or what your sin is, the sexual sin, whatever it is. When you hold on to this, there's salvation. And you're set free. Christ came to set us free from sin, not comfort us in it. Let me ask you, who are you trusting today? Are you motivated by your fear of hell? Or is it your love for God? for all that he's done for you. I pray the love of Jesus drives you, motivates you. And you may say, yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself. Yep, I feel that way often. So I gotta come back again to Jesus. He is the author and finisher of my faith. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Jude. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you join us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.